Good morning, Sovereign Grace. If you have your Bibles, feel free to go ahead and turn to Genesis 9. We're going to start reading in verse 8. We've been studying Noah and the flood and the covenant with Noah. And now we turn today to the covenant sign. So we heard about the covenant promises and blessings, and today we look at the covenant sign. Well, I want to read that passage starting in Genesis 9 and verse 8. We'll be reading to verse 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him for his help and understanding. Father, we do pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that we would understand this sign-giving ceremony that we see, this story, this divine revelation given by your Spirit through Moses of the way in which you gave a sign to Noah that confirms your covenant promises. Help us to understand covenants and their signs that you give and how those are helpful to us so that we might trust evermore in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when the Lord unilaterally graces us with a covenant, he also gives us a sign of the covenant. The sign is, I'm to borrow from Augustine, a visible word. That sign is a visible word. Covenant promises have been made, and the sign speaks to that reality, and it speaks to that reality in a visible way. Children, many of you kids are aware of this already because you've attended weddings. And at the wedding of a married couple, after they take their vows, you see them exchange rings. The vows are the promises of their covenant, and the rings, as they exchange them, are the sign of their covenant. The wedding ring is a visible reminder of the covenant promises. Well, this morning we're going to look at the covenant sign 
that was made with Noah and all the earth. The covenant sign. We know that covenant sign made with Noah and all the earth as the rainbow. We're going to consider that. And we're going to consider first that the Lord gave a gift of a covenant sign. So we're going to consider that in Genesis 9, 8 through 13. The Lord's gift of the covenant sign in Genesis 9, 8 through 13. And second, we're going to consider how the covenant sign helps us. How it helps us. You'll see that in Genesis 9, 13 through 17. So let's look first at the Lord's gift. First at the Lord's gift of a covenant sign. Look at Genesis 9. I'm going to read verses 8 through 13 and then comment generally on this passage. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Don't forget that language. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Just to be clear, the word establishes to make stand. He's not starting a new covenant. The covenant is already in place. He's making it stand. He's making good on his word. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. You hear the repetitiveness here? I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, we've already heard this at the end of Genesis 8. We've already heard of the establishment of the covenant in Genesis 6, 18. This is not the point at which the covenant is actually being made, but the point at which the covenant is being confirmed with a sign. So notice what he goes on to say. Verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, I want to consider three truths with regard to this covenant and its sign that the Lord gives us. He gives us a covenant and a sign here. I want to consider three truths with regard to this covenant and its sign. First, the Noahic covenant is not only unilateral. When I say unilateral, I mean second covenant imposed by God. Noah didn't ask for the covenant. It was given to him by grace. Like, we, when we enter a marriage covenant, we enter a bilateral covenant. We together, a man and a woman, together decide to enter that covenant. When God covenants with us, those covenants are given unilaterally. God gives them to us. So it's not only unilateral, though. It's also unconditional. It's unconditional when it's offered to man. In other words, while you can disobey the covenant commands in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, and while it's assumed you will disobey the covenant commands in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, that's why in Genesis 8, 21, when God says that man is evil from his youth, the intention of his heart is evil from his youth, therefore I will preserve them. That's why he's going to preserve us, because he knows we're going to continue to break or violate the covenant commands. This covenant is unconditional in that it cannot ultimately be broken by us. Cannot ultimately be broken by us. Yes, Covenant obedience will bring experienced blessing, but covenant disobedience will not terminate the covenant promise. The basic assumption of the Noahic covenant is that we will continue 
to violate God's law. Thus, he will patiently restrain his judgment against us. Genesis 8.21 makes that clear. So that's first. It is unilateral, imposed by God, and unconditional in the sense that even as we disobey, it doesn't end or, if you will, bring to a terminus this covenant. Now, second, the Noahic covenant is universal in its administration of God's grace. In other words, it's universally administering God's grace. Many scholars will refer to it this way by calling it a covenant of preservation or a covenant of common grace coming out of the Dutch tradition. The covenant with Noah gives a kind of, if you will, a kind of temporal grace to all the earth. All the earth is spared from devastating global judgment. All the earth is given the institution of the family and the state. The sun shines on the wicked and the righteous. The rain falls on the wicked and the righteous. There's a kind of common, general, universal kindness in this covenant extended to all mankind. But keep in mind that the ultimate purpose of this covenant is so that God can save a particular people through the coming of the seed of the woman. Third, this is the third one and the one we're going to spend the most time on. Covenant signs bear a sacramental significance. You go, well, that's a lot of language. Okay, so covenant signs, and it's redundant too if you listen. Covenant signs bear a sacramental significance. Do you hear sign and significance? Okay, good. They're sacramental signs. So what does that mean? What do I mean by that? A sacrament is a visible word of God. As Augustine would have said, a sacrament, I want you to hear this, a sacrament is a visible sign, a visible sign of an invisible grace, of an invisible grace. So the Lord employs a visible sign to confer upon the covenant parties, all those who are in the covenant, to confer upon them the gracious promise he's making. The invisible promise God is making is being given a visible sign. The invisible promise God is making, invisible promise, is being given a visible sign for the sake of those to whom he's making it. Again, think of the wedding ring. This ring that I wear, this ring is the visible sign of the invisible vows of my marriage. Maybe one of you were at my wedding. I'm not sure. You might say, well, I remember you making the vows, so how do you say they're invisible? What do I mean by that? If people see no ring on my finger, then they do not know that I'm in a marriage covenant because my vows are now invisible. If they see no sign that I'm in a covenant, those vows are invisible. They don't know that I ever took them. They can't see them. They have no visible way of seeing that I've made covenant promises or that someone's made them to me. But if they see a ring on my finger, then they see my marriage promises. They see that I'm in a covenant. Well, the Lord is graciously conferring upon the whole earth a covenant promise to preserve wicked man until he saves all his people in the seed of the woman. And the Lord confers that covenant promise with a covenant sign. This is the first time in the Bible, by the way, 
first time in the Bible where the word sign appears as a covenant sign or a sign of the covenant. I do not mean, though, I do not mean that this is the first sacramental sign or the first covenant sign in the Bible. I think the two trees in Genesis 2 are the first covenant signs in the Bible. Just as I said in Genesis 6.18, Genesis 6.18 is the first time we see the word covenant in the Bible. Or Genesis 7.1 is the first time we see the word household in the Bible. That does not mean, just because that's the case, that does not mean that covenants nor households existed prior to the use of those words. Right? Clearly, we can think about households with regard to Adam and his offspring. We can think about covenants with regard to the covenant Adam's in in Genesis 2 and the covenant that is made in Genesis 3.15. I preached on that already, so I won't spend time there. But this is the first time the use of the word covenant sign or sign of the covenant is used. We're going to see this language again in Genesis 17, sign of the covenant. So I think it's important that we look there. And as we do, here's what I want you to do. Put your hand in Genesis 17 and in Genesis 9 at the same time. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to see the parallel language between the covenants and signs with Noah and Abraham. The language has really clear parallels. We're going to flip back and forth. So we'll look at Genesis 9, 8 through 13 first and note the language. Then we'll go to Genesis 17, um, 2 through 11 and look at the language again. So look first at Genesis 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Now notice this language. Behold, I myself. By the way, you don't see that here, but it's this kind of intensive, reflexive. I myself. Behold, behold, I myself establish. Establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. So I establish my covenant with you. Behold, I myself establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now look at verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant, the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. Now look at verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign... Of the covenant between me and the earth. Also, don't forget the language in Genesis 9, 1 and 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now, I want you to hear the same language when there's a covenant sign given to Abraham. If you remember, God first calls Abraham in relation to him in Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, he cuts or ratifies the covenant that he's made with Abraham. He makes the promises, if you will, in Genesis 12 and cuts or ratifies those covenant promises in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 17, he gives him the sign of the covenant. So let's look at that as well. Genesis 17 and verse 1. When we come back to Genesis 17, we'll look at verse 1 and notice the parallels between that language and the language with Noah as well. But for the sake of time, let's just start with verse 2. He tells him to walk before him. He says, that I may make my covenant between me and you 
and may multiply you greatly. Again, this is the same language that I may make my covenant between me and you as you see in Genesis 9, 12. Same Hebrew language as Genesis 9, 12. I may make my, the covenant I make between me and you. Now look what he goes on to say. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. My covenant is with you. We just saw that before. But again, this is the behold. Behold, remember in Genesis 9, behold, I myself establish my covenant with you. Here it is again. Behold, I myself. It's more intensive in Hebrew than we have it here in English. Behold, I myself covenant with you. Is what it says in Hebrew. I myself covenant with you. Now he goes on. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you, now remember Genesis 9, 1 and 7, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He's going to multiply him and make him fruitful. Just like we saw in the command with Noah. And I will establish, verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. We saw that language in Genesis 9 as well. And what is it for? For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now look down at Genesis 17:11. There's more to say here. Actually, you know what? Look at 8 and 9. We'll read that. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I'll be their God. So he's going to have offspring and land, just like Noah was going to have offspring and land. In other words, the whole of the earth. And Paul does tell us that Abraham understood that he was the heir of the whole earth. Romans 4. And God said to Abraham... As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So this is an interesting statement. This is my covenant. This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now look at the next phrase. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Same Hebrew language. There's much more to look at here in Genesis 17, but for the sake of time, we're going to move. What we are reading in both accounts in Genesis 9 and 17 is the covenant being conferred by the giving of a sign. The covenant being conferred by the giving of the sign. Both of these respective covenants are already ratified. Genesis 8 And prior to that, we see that with Noah in Genesis 6 through 8, really. And here, we've seen that with Abraham in Genesis 12 through 15. These are not passages, Genesis 17 or Genesis 9, at least 8 through 17, where the covenant is first being given. These are passages where the covenants are being given their signs. Now, I'm not saying there's no new revelation here about the nature of the covenants. There is some new revelation regarding the makeup of these covenants. But these covenants are not being made for the first time in these passages. The focus of these passages is upon God giving 
the covenant sign. This is like the time in a wedding ceremony. In the wedding ceremony, notice, after the vows, after the vows, the promises, if you will, of the covenant, the obligations of the covenant, after the vows have been made, the couple exchanges rings. There's a a sign being attached to the covenant promise to visibly confer, if you will, what God has said. The covenant sign is a visible word. It's a visible sign of invisible grace. And the sign is so closely connected with the covenant promise. I want you to catch this important. If you want to read all the covenant signs properly, you have to catch this. The covenant sign is so closely connected with the covenant promise that the covenant can be named by its sign. It can be named by its sign. So we can call the Abrahamic covenant the covenant of circumcision. Covenant of circumcision. Listen, understand that. The covenant promise to Abraham is not, is not that now men have the privilege of being circumcised. Praise the Lord. Right? We've worked to the point where God is now promising men, you can be circumcised. That is not the promise of the covenant to Abraham, that's its sign. That's its sign. Rather, keep that in. Circumcision is the sign of the promises to Abraham. Circumcision is the visible sign of an invisible grace. And signs are so closely identified with the covenant that at the covenant-making ceremony or the covenant-renewing ceremony, the sign can be called the covenant. We know, for example, that Noah was in a covenant with God prior to God giving him the sign. We can see that in Genesis 6.18, Genesis 7.1, and following Genesis 8.20-9.7. So now as the Lord comes to give the covenant sign, he again says to Noah, here is my covenant that I will make with you. The covenant I will establish with you. This is its sign. The reason I spend so much time here It's that we need to understand that covenants and signs are closely identified. If you don't understand that the sign is the visible word of the invisible grace of the covenant, then you will move toward a Roman Catholic sort of understanding, potentially. Because you will start to identify the sign and the thing signified as essentially the same thing. So that if I'm baptized, then I'm saved. We can see that with baptism, can't we? And I bring it to baptism because the failure to understand this close relation leads many, leads many to believe baptism itself is saving. Why? Why would they think baptism itself is saving? Well, think of what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, and the the this is Noah's Ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That sure sounds like baptism saves you, doesn't it? Baptism now saves you. Or think about when the crowd at Pentecost, after being convicted regarding the fact that they crucified the Messiah, they asked Peter, what must we do? And Peter responds, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord our God shall call. Now let me tell you what Peter is not saying in either of these passages. Because in both of them it sounds like baptism saves you, baptism brings you the forgiveness of the sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's the promise. Peter is not saying in either of these passages that baptism itself is the gospel promise. He's not saying, I have good news for you. The Messiah has come, and now you all get to have water put on you. And that water, it's magic. It'll save you. It's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that everyone who receives baptism has the invisible grace being signed in baptism. He's not saying that. How do we know that? Because we don't have to go far in Acts to find the baptism of Simon Magus, who was baptized by Peter, though he's clearly a false professor. He had the visible word of grace, if you will, baptism, but he did not have the invisible grace signed in that visible word. He didn't know the Lord. Rather, what Peter is doing is he's treating baptism as a sacramental sign. The same thing we see with circumcision. It was a sacramental sign. Not everyone who received the sign of circumcision had the invisible covenant grace being signed in circumcision. How do we know that? If a man was not circumcised in his heart, then he was not a true Jew, Romans 2, 25-29, nor ultimately a child of the promise, Romans 9, 6 and following. So baptism, like circumcision, is a visible word. Baptism is a visible sign of an invisible grace. Peter's point is not that the waters of baptism themselves save you, except, now here's, here's going to give you a little exception, except inasmuch as baptism is a visible sign of an invisible grace. So inasmuch as that visible word of grace and the invisible word of grace come together, baptism saves you. Inasmuch as you have the reality being promised in the visible picture, baptism saves you. I hope you guys are tracking with me. Let's think again of the marriage analogy. I can go and buy a wedding ring and put it on my finger. Now I have a sign. But if I have not gotten married, then I do not have the thing which the ring signs. Likewise, if you have the invisible covenant grace that the baptismal water signified, then you are saved. If you just have the sign and not the invisible grace, you are not saved. You are merely signed. Now, beloved, I have argued all of this in an effort to help you understand the ultimate purpose of covenant signs because they go through the whole Bible. Ultimately, covenant signs are instituted. I want you to hear this language. They're instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. Did you hear that? These covenant signs represent Christ and his benefits, and God gave these signs to confirm our interest in him. 
the sign of baptism itself is not Christ and his benefits. Rather, baptism represents Christ and his benefits and confirms your interest in him. And we need to understand sovereign grace that all the biblical covenant signs, I want you to hear this part because this is the claim that you should go. Are you sure? You got to prove that. All the biblical covenant signs represent Christ and his benefits. All of them represent Christ and his benefits. What does the tree of life in the Garden of Eden ultimately sign? Christ and life in him. How do we know? Revelation 21 and 22. What does circumcision ultimately sign? Christ and his work on the cross. How do we know? Colossians 2, 11 through 15. What does Passover ultimately sign? Christ, our Passover lamb. How do we know? 1 Corinthians 5, 7. What does the sign of the Sabbath given to Israel in Exodus 31, 12 and following ultimately sign? Christ, our true Sabbath rest. How do we know? Hebrews 4. And what does the rainbow, the rainbow, ultimately sign? What I'm arguing is, it ultimately signs Christ and his benefits. For the rainbow is not merely a sign that God preserves the earth. It's not merely a sign that God, it is that. But it is not merely that. It's a sign of the covenant of grace. We know that from Isaiah 54 verses 9 and 10. To quote the 18th century Baptist theologian John Gill, listen to what he says, the rainbow is a reverberation of Christ, the son of righteousness, the sum and substance of the covenant. Notice that. He's saying that Christ is the sum and the substance of the covenant with Noah. In Daniel and Revelation, Christ himself In the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, Christ himself is the one who comes with the clouds and has a rainbow around his throne. Christ, the one full of glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ, the one of whom the angelic choirs sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Christ, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, he is the one to whom the rainbow points. For he, he was the one for whom God's justice gave pause as the whole world awaited the day of his coming. And friends, this means the rainbow remains, remains a visible word of an invisible grace for us. It does so because Christ's return in judgment upon the whole world is patiently restrained as he sends his ambassadors out to gather the elect from every corner of the earth. Christ is delayed as he desires that all his people should be brought to repentance. The New Testament is clear about this. Now I've already begun stealing my thunder from my next point. So let me just get to the next point. How does the covenant sign help us? How does the covenant sign help us? I suppose you're beginning to see that, but look at Genesis 9 and verse 13. Genesis 9 and verse 13. 
I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Notice this. My bow. I have set my bow in the cloud. This is the Lord's bow. He is the sign maker. And think of how this sign helps us. God accommodates our creatureliness by giving us a sensible sign. That's what he's doing in all of these signs he's giving us, the covenant. He's accommodating our creatureliness so that we have some visible word of the invisible grace. As creatures, we can't see the invisible grace. We can see the visible word or the sacramental sign. He gives us something, if you will, that we can see and taste and touch and smell. I don't mean we can taste, touch, and smell the rainbow. I mean with signs in general. But we can see the rainbow. It's a sensible sign. He gives us something visible to encourage us that God does not forget his invisible promises to us. Nor does God relent in fulfilling those promises to us. Now the rainbow is not necessarily something that, I just want to put this caveat on here. It's not necessarily something that man has never seen before. God doesn't say, I'm going to invent a thing called a rainbow. And Noah nowhere asked the question when God says, when I put my bow in the cloud, Noah nowhere asked the question, what's a rainbow? He, just, he knows. Just like circumcision is not new in human history in Genesis 17. You realize that, right? Others in the ancient Near East were being circumcised. Abraham doesn't have to have circumcision, what it is, explained to him. He's aware of what it is. Nor is the Sabbath new in Exodus 31 when it's given as a sign. Nor is baptism new in the New Testament. When John the Baptist comes baptizing in the wilderness, nobody says, hey, John, wait a minute, what is baptism? It already is in the Old Testament. You can find it in the book of Leviticus. These are phenomena that are either in nature or that already exist in religious practices. One of the two. Baptism isn't in nature, but it already exists in a religious practice. These are phenomena that are in nature or that already exist in religious practice, which God employs as sensible, visible signs for us. Covenant signs encourage us. They both sign the covenant promise and confirm the accomplishment of the same. Listen to how John Calvin says this. In order to strengthen our faith in his word, God does not disdain to use such helps. Here the Lord speaks to holy Noah and his sons, and he then gives them a sign to reassure them. It appears to some absurd that faith should be sustained by such helps. But those who speak in this way do not, in the first place, reflect on the great ignorance and imbecility of our minds. You like how he speaks about us? If you think we don't need visible signs, you're not reflecting properly on the ignorance and imbecility of our minds. Nor do they second ascribe to the secret power of the Spirit the praise that is due him. It is God's work alone to begin and to perfect faith. 
but he does it by such instruments as he sees fit. One of the ways he begins and perfects faith is by the sacramental instruments he gives. And if you don't understand that, you're missing out, if you will, on the secret power of the Holy Spirit. You can't see it, can you? When you see a baptism or you come to the Lord's Supper and you take this bread and this cup, it's all so common and ordinary and you wonder, why do we do it? Why do we do it regularly? Because you need a visible picture for your imbecilic mind to continue in faith. And because the Holy Spirit has chosen by the appointment of Christ the head, to begin and establish our faith in this way. He goes on to say, God uses instruments as he sees fit, the free choice of which is God's own power. God graciously gives these signs to help us. And in the Noahic covenant, he gives us his bow to help us. It is his bow, not only because he created it, but because it is a sign and confirmation of his pledge to us. And the bow that is set in the clouds against the ominous sign of the flood waters. You notice that? The bow is set in the clouds against the ominous sign of the flood waters. So that we see God's sign of his gracious promise. If you will, the rainbow and the cloud together provide us the picture of mercy against the backdrop of judgment. So these signs confirm our covenant relation to God and tell us that God does not forget his promises to us. With that said, look at Genesis 9, 14 through 17. Genesis 9, 14 through 17. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's interesting language. Note that the rainbow is a sign to remind God. You know, you look up at the rainbow and you think, that's a sign to remind me, right? But he's saying, actually, it's a sign to remind God of his promise. You might say, does that mean that God forgets his covenant promises? And it's like, oh, a rainbow. Oh, yeah, I promise not to destroy them all. I better hold it back. No. No, that's not the point. We went over what it means for God to remember in Genesis 8.1. This is covenantal language. What he's saying is, I'm remembering my covenant This, it's a sign that he remembers. What do I mean? When we see the sign of the rainbow in the clouds, we know that the Lord remembers his covenant promises. We know that the Lord does not forget his word to us. We're, if you will, seeing a visible picture of God's invisible grace We are seeing with the rainbow and the clouds, we are seeing a visible word that God is one who remembers his covenant to his people. The Lord remembers. The Lord hears. 
The Lord sees. The Lord knows. He is not a distant and forgetful God who is uninterested in what's happening among us day to day. Rather, he's the God who numbers the hairs on our heads. He sees the sparrow fall. He numbers our days before there was yet one. He is always at the ready, providing whatever is needful for us. You know, I have a grandson on the way right now, due mid-March. And I know that the Lord is carefully and skillfully forming his little body. I know that the Lord has created him body and soul, and the Lord has breathed life into him. And I know that the Lord sees him and knows him and cares for him. The Lord attends to the smallest details for our good. Children, think about this. No matter how big or small the details of your life, no matter how severe or minimal the suffering in your home, the Lord is with you in it. He cares for you. He sees you. He hears you. He knows. He does not forget you. Teenagers, remember that. I know there's so much teen drama that happens. Remember, God God is with you in that. He sees you. He hears you. He knows. He doesn't forget you. Beloved, this is our God. This is our God. And in the face of our rebellion and sin, in the face of our rebellion and sin, the Lord promised to preserve us, to care for us, to provide for us, in order that he might bring about the salvation of all his people in his son. And the Lord gave us the sign of the rainbow, and he calls it my bow. And when we see his bow in the sky, and we gaze upon its dazzling beauty, we are reminded that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above tell of his handiwork, and we know from that sign that God remembers us. He hears us. He sees us. He knows. To those who are suffering or anxious, when the world seems to be spinning out of control and you see the rainbow, you're being reminded that the Lord continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power. Every detail of it. Every molecule. There isn't one random molecule in the universe. He attends to all of it. He's still watching over you and caring for you. He's still patiently preserving all mankind to the end that he might save his people. When you're anxious, when you're suffering, remember that. To those of you who are lonely, these signs tell you that God is with you. He cares for you. He sees you. He hears you. He remembers you. He has not forgotten you. 
You might feel like the whole rest of the world has forgotten you, but God is not. To the rebellious sinner, those of you who are not trusting in Christ in faith, when you see the rainbow, you're reminded that it's not too late to repent. Not too late to repent. The Lord is still being patient. There is time to repent. So you look away from yourself and your sins and you turn to Christ and his righteousness and you're saved. To the believers here who are uh, feeling like weak and weary sinners, like you walked out of here last Sunday and the world beat you down all week long and now you come back here. Covenant signs tell you that the Lord has not forgotten to be gracious to you. That's true with all covenant signs. Every time we see a baptism or we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that the Lord has made promises to us. I'm reminded that Christ and all his benefits are mine. Further, I'm reminded that no matter how difficult things are, no matter how unworthy I feel on a particular week, Christ is mine and I'm his. And the Lord has not forgotten me, nor has promises to me, nor will he forget. I hope you hear that, Sovereign Grace. When you see the Lord's Supper or someone being baptized or you see the rainbow in the clouds, you are being visibly reminded that Christ is yours and you are his. And when the rain falls and you see that bow, God's bow, you're reminded of God's continual care and preservation of you so that you might be saved by his son. And finally, we are reminded that while God is patient, he's patient, he will not suffer sin forever. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And so the bow gives us a kind of missionary imperative, doesn't it? We pray, God, give us grace to open our mouths and speak of Christ both here and among the nations so that many might be saved because we know you're long-suffering but not forever suffering. And there is coming a day when you return to judge the living and the dead. May you use us as your instruments to save many. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be continually thankful for the visible signs that you've given us, these visible words of an invisible grace. We know that our minds are feeble. We know that our faith needs the help that you have chosen to provide in these signs. And we pray that we would be thankful for them that we would not despise the sacramental signs that you've given to us, but they would be occasions of great joy and thanksgiving as you speak through them your word of grace to us in Christ. May we trust him and grow in him and lean upon him. And may we know, Father, that you are always the God of the covenant who 
hears us and sees us and knows us and remembers us for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.